You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 2. Gospel of John, chapter 2. We will read verse 13 through verse 17 together. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Let's pray together. Our Father, as always, we are dependent upon you for all that we have and for, of course, understanding your word. We thank you that we have the Bible in our laps, that we can understand it by your assistance and by your grace. We pray that you would extend that grace to us now this morning. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher here. And may you work in our hearts obedience and praise and wonder at your grace and your goodness and your power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis, uh, when he wrote the book Mere Christianity and during his long life of apologetics, sort of popularized a three-point, easy-to-remember argument for showing that the deity of Jesus Christ was the most reasonable and rational belief in the world given what Jesus claimed of himself. And uh, it wasn't C.S. Lewis who actually originally came up with this argument. I think he got it from Augustine or Anselm or Thomas Aquinas or Ambrosiaster or some other guy's name started with an A. I do remember that. But C.S. Lewis kind of popularized it, and he sort of put it in a way that was is easy for us to grasp. And some of you are familiar with this argument, so just bear with me while I enlighten the rest who may be not familiar with this argument. C.S. Lewis said, when we grant that what the New Testament says is accurate concerning what Jesus said of himself, and that is that Jesus did not claim to be a spiritual leader, he did not claim to be a political revolutionary, he did not claim to be a religious reformer, he did not claim to be a good moral teacher or even a good moral example. He claimed to be God. He used divine names of himself. He attributed to himself divine attributes. He claimed to do divine functions and have divine authority. For instance, he claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He claimed to, and in the future, be the one that is going to judge all of creation and all men, and that all men will stand before him. So all of the things that Jesus claimed of himself pointed to his deity. Unmistakable from the New Testament, even a cursory reading of the New Testament shows that Jesus Christ claimed to be God in human flesh. Now, given that, we are left with only three possible conclusions. And here's Lewis's argument. Number one, Jesus was a liar. That is, he claimed to be God and he knew he was not. And knowing he was not God, he claimed to be something that he was. And he promoted this illusion, this delusion, really, to his disciples who all bought it hook, line, and sinker because they all believed he was God. And he did everything in his power to convince people that he was something that he knew he wasn't. That makes him a liar. In fact, it makes him one of the worst liars in all of human history. It makes him almost a monster in his lie because countless thousands, millions, 
have followed his lie and believed the lie and given their lives for that lie. So Jesus is either a liar or second, he is a lunatic. That is, he thought he was God, but he wasn't. And so he claimed to be God because he thought he was God. This puts him on par, Lewis says, with a man who would claim to be a poached egg. He thought he was God, but he wasn't. And so in claiming to be that, his claims to be God are not then the claims of a liar. They are the claims of a madman, a lunatic, somebody who is insane. Only, I mean, we have rooms for people who claim to be God and think they're God today, right? They get the padding on the sides, and we put them in nice white jackets with long sleeves. If he wasn't God, then he was either a liar or he was a lunatic, or, Lewis says, you have a third option, and that is that he is the Lord of all the universe. If he wasn't God, then he either knew it or he didn't know it, in which case he was either a liar or a lunatic. If he was God, then he claimed to be God, then he is Lord. So, Lewis says, you can either dismiss him as a liar, you can spit at him as a lunatic, or you can bow your knee to him as Lord. But he hasn't left open to us any other option to say, well, he was a good moral teacher or a religious reformer or a good spiritual leader. All of those things are nonsense. Jesus didn't intend to leave those options open to us. You have to either acknowledge that he was a liar, acknowledge that he was a lunatic, or acknowledge that he was a, is the Lord of all creation. And by the way, uh, for those of you who are familiar with C.S. Lewis's writings, that little argument plays out in the movie and in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Lucy, having gone to Narnia, comes back through the... the um, um, thank you. Sometimes I can talk faster than I can think. Comes back out of the wardrobe, and she has been in this magical, mystical land. And she tells her brothers and her sister about this magical, mystical land, and they, of course, don't believe her. They are sort of teasing her and poking fun at her. And there comes a point where the three of them, her two brothers and her sister, are standing in the office of Professor Diggory. Now, Professor Diggory knows... By the way, this is all off a script, but Professor Diggory knows that there's power in this magical land of Narnia, and he is aware of the potential magical uh, ability of the wardrobe because the wardrobe was built from the wood of an apple tree which was grown from a seed from an apple from Narnia when Professor Diggory was there. Now he's older and he's grown up and he knows all of this. And so as the kids come in, they say, we're a little concerned about Lucy and what she's claiming. She claims to have gone to this mystical land in the back of the wardrobe. And Professor Diggory walks them through this very same argument. And he says to the kids, is Lucy the type of person who lies regularly? Is she a liar? And they have to say, no, she's not known to lie. She's a really truthful individual. So then he says, do you think it's possible that she is crazy and lost her mind? Is there evidence that she is basically a lunatic? And the kids say no. So Professor Diggory says then, you're left with the logical conclusion, which is what? That Lucy is telling the truth. And see how Lewis kind of worked that argument into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It was a brilliant thing. And what Lewis later said was, he worked that argument into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe so kids would learn to think that way about the claims of Jesus, which he sort of popularized. Anyway. That little argument, the liar, lunatic, Lord argument, works with the claims that Jesus made concerning himself, and it works equally well with the things that Jesus did. That is his actions. Because quite frankly, there are things that Jesus did that if he was not God, if he were not God, were completely beyond the realm of anything that he should have had his nose involved in and been doing. For instance, the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. When he walked into Jerusalem and he saw the temple and all the commerce that was going on inside the temple, and then he made a whip of cords and drove those men and all of their animals out of there and rebuked them 
for what they had done and cleared out the temple courtyard. When he did that, he was in essence usurping authority over the priests, over the temple, over the worshipers, over the religious establishment of the entire nation and saying, I have the power and the ability to determine what goes on in the house of God. This is my father's house and it will be treated with respect. And what he was doing was basically putting himself above everybody else in the nation and saying, I have the authority to determine what is true and right worship. And I will execute that judgment in this house. Now that symbolism, that meaning was not lost to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. He was in essence claiming the authority of God. Only God would have the authority to come in and cleanse the temple like that, like Jesus did, and to make the claims that he did. If Jesus was not God, then his cleansing of the temple was an act of such pride, such arrogance, such condescending, pompous self-aggrandizement, that he would be the most hideous individual from our perspective. If he wasn't God, then you couldn't say anything good about him after he cleansed the temple. That was such an arrogant, prideful, pompous, self-aggrandizing thing to do if he was not God. Or the cleansing of the temple was the rantings and the ravings and the actions of a lunatic. No Jew in his right mind would come into the temple and do what Jesus did, and yet Jesus did it. So if he's not a pompous, proud, self-aggrandizing self-seeking individual, and he's not a lunatic, then what is he? He had the authority to cleanse the temple. He is what? He is God, especially concerning the claims that he made when he did it. So that brings us to John chapter 2. And last week, we sort of introduced this sign, which is not a sign, we called it. We introduced this, and we just looked at the setting, the scene that Jesus would have walked into when he walked into the temple, what he would have seen there. All of the religious worshipers traveling from all over the Roman Empire, when they arrived in Jerusalem, To celebrate the Passover, they would have had two needs. Number one, they would have had need for an animal sacrifice. Number two, they would have had need for the proper currency to pay the temple tax that Exodus 30 required. And they would go into the temple and it would always be cheaper, easier, more convenient to buy an animal in the temple, even at the exorbitant rates that they were charging inside the temple, always probably more convenient than hauling that animal for weeks across land or sea and across the desert and the feed and the care and everything that would be required to get that animal to Jerusalem. Even with the exorbitant rates, it was easier just to buy it in Jerusalem, and most people did. They just showed up in the city, they went to the temple where they could buy their animal, exchange their money, sacrifice their animal, give their money, and have it all done in one nice little location. It's convenience. We pay for convenience all the time, and they were paying for convenience in their day. So they had the animal sacrifices that were going on, and even those who were, sorry, the animal selling that was going on, and even those who could have brought their own animal into the temple, didn't necessarily want to do that because then they'd have to pay the inspector to inspect the animal and their animal might not necessarily pass inspection so they would be stuck buying an animal at an exorbitant rate anyway. The second thing they needed was for the money to be changed. They would come with all of their currencies. They would need to exchange it and they did so in the temple courtyard at exorbitant rates. So you can imagine the scene that you would have walked into had you walked into the temple that day that Jesus did. You would have walked into the temple, maybe after traveling hundreds of miles over the course of weeks, land and sea, with all of your stuff and your family, all coming to Jerusalem, expecting to walk into the temple to pray, to meditate, to sing songs of worship to God, to confess, to repent your sin, to offer your sacrifices. It should be a time of rejoicing. And you walk into the temple, and what are you met with? You are met with the smell of ox dung, dove dung, sheep dung, You are met with all of the sound of the bleeding of the sheep and the bawling of the oxen and the cooing of the doves and all of these merchants haggling and dickering over the price of animals and exchange rate with all of these people who are milling about this large temple courtyard, hundreds of people in this 14-acre complex, milling about, and you are 
expecting to come in and hear songs of praise and worship and prayer and see people who have been fasting all week and are there to worship God. And instead, you're met with a marketplace, a circus, and a bazaar. And that's what it was. It was bizarre in every sense of the term. Not anything like you might expect, especially if you're a Gentile. Now, if you're a Gentile, you can't walk through the courtyard and walk into the temple proper, right? Remember the wall of separation around the temple? You couldn't go past that without being killed. And the Jews would have killed them on the spot for doing that. So if you're a Gentile, the closest you can get to worshiping God is in the middle of this marketplace in the outer court of the temple. That was the only thing that you would know of worshiping the one true God in the temple was all of this bizarre circus activity going on outside. So today we're going to look at what Jesus did with the scene that he was confronted with in the temple. We're going to look at verses 15, 16, and 17. There's a number of ways that we could outline this, but I think probably the best way to look at these verses is just to look at them from the perspective of what this passage tells us about Jesus of Nazareth. What does this tell us about Jesus? John recorded this like he did the miracle, like he did everything else, in order to show us the glory of Christ. So in everything that Jesus said and everything that Jesus did, his glory, the glory of the Word made flesh, is manifested to us. So let's look at these verses in terms of what they reveal about Jesus. Three things. Verse 15, we see in the cleansing of the temple, his power manifested. Second, verse 16, his position is revealed. And then third, his passion in verse 17. His power, his position, and his passion. Now look at his power in verse 15. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I think that what Jesus did when he walked into the temple was he saw all of this and it made him amazingly, I think intensely indignant. J.C. Ryle, in fact, one of the things that we notice, we'll go through the passage actually, one of the things we notice is the activity of Jesus. He came in, he saw this, he made a whip, he grabbed the whip, he drove them out, overturned tables, poured out the coins and commanded people selling doves. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says that no point in the life of the Lord do we see him more active in in indignance than we see him right here. It is almost as if Jesus was so indignant, so vexed by what he saw, that the only way of describing the emotions and the passion of that moment is simply to describe this flurry of activity that he did that day when he walked into the temple in cleansing it out, cleaning it out. He made a scourge of cords, probably a reference to ropes. There would have been ropes all over the temple courtyard. Animals would have been tied up to them, and then as the animals were sold, the ropes would have been laying on the ground or collecting dust somewhere in some corner of brushed up against the wall. Jesus could have very easily had access to a number of ropes that he would have sort of loosely braided together or tied together to make a whip. And don't imagine anything cruel, by the way, with the whip. He's not hurting anybody. He's not hurting animals. If you've ever had to herd animals, then you know it's very convenient to have something in your hands that makes your arms look very big and be able to to turn them around and whip them around through the air in order to drive animals where you want. That's all Jesus is doing. He's not being cruel to animals. So if there's any card-carrying members of PETA here, and I doubt it, don't think that Jesus was doing anything of particular cruelty to the animals or to the people. He wasn't. It wasn't cruel of him to do this at all. I mentioned last week that Alfred Edersheim calls this the sign which was not a sign. In other words, it's, it's a sign in the sense that it signifies something of Jesus, but it's not a sign in the sense that turning water into wine was a sign. It was not miraculous per se. And I mentioned last week, I'm not at all convinced that nothing miraculous was going on here. I think there was something miraculous happening, happening here. And let me tell you why. There are things about this scene, as it's presented here, there are things about this scene which defy natural explanation. 
Jesus went into a 14-acre complex in which there were hundreds, if not thousands, of people who had gathered there to worship. This big, what had turned into a marketplace. He was outnumbered, enormously outnumbered, by the money changers, the inspectors, and the animal vendors. Outnumbered. It's not like Jesus drove out two or three guys and a half a dozen animals who were camped next to the gate. There were enough animals in the courtyard, enough money changers, and enough animal vendors to accommodate the thousands of people, thousands of people, who came into the Jerusalem over the course of those two and three weeks in which all of this activity and preparation for Passover was going on. Thousands of people. I would imagine there were hundreds of doves, hundreds of sheep, and hundreds of oxen in this massive courtyard. On top of that, there would have been dozens, if not hundreds, of money changers, inspectors, and animal vendors. And on top of that, would have been very active in watching this whole scene, all of the temple police, whose job it was to keep order during times like this. Then there was all of the priests, and the priesthood, and the Levites, and all of those who assisted the priests, and the high priest, and his family, who controlled the temple police. All of those people would have been on this scene. Now I ask you this. How is it that Jesus went into the temple and cleansed out hundreds of people, dozens of people, out of a 14-acre complex, and he was not opposed, subdued, arrested, rebuked, or with or restrained? How did he do that? And the animals. Have you ever tried to hurt animals? Animals will go everywhere but where you want them to go. You can have an animal in a chute where it's only forward and backward and you want him to go forward, he wants to go backward. Even when there's only two possible directions. How is it that Jesus was able to get hundreds of animals out of the temple complex in a 14-acre piece of real estate? How do you do that? How do you do that? It would take me all day to herd three animals out of the temple from a 14-acre piece of real estate. How did he do all of that without being opposed, without being restrained? You know how he did it? The sheer power of his word and his will compelled them out of the temple. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced there's no explanation for this as to why he was not subdued, arrested, drug outside the temple and stoned, other than it was not his time, and Jesus' enemies had no more power over him than the power he allowed them to have. Do you remember in John chapter 18, what happened when the crowd came to arrest him? And they said, and he said to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth said, I'm he. What did they do? They drew back and they fell down to the ground. There is nobody who could stand before him if he did not will them to stand before him. And I believe that it is an act of his own will, compelling them by his will and by his word. Hundreds of people fled from before him. Hundreds of animals fled from before him out of the temple. And in a matter of minutes, he cleared out the whole complex. That is an amazing demonstration of his power, of his power. The ability to clear that out like he did, unopposed. Have you ever, I was discussing this whole, this whole episode in the life of Jesus with a friend, and you know, most of you know him, Bruce Morak. And we were discussing the supernatural elements of this and whether this was a miracle or not. And he said, you know what? Have you, have you ever been somewhere where you have been totally overcome with an unexplainable terror? Have you ever had that happen? Been somewhere where you have been totally overcome with an inexplicable terror. And you have no idea what is causing the terror. I've had it happen a number of times in my life. There was one time it was actually up on a roof. 
I was up on a roof before I started pastoring, and I was roofing. It was not that far up. It was a story and a half. I had been up on heights higher than that, way higher than that. And I crawled up on this particular roof, and it was shallow. It was only like a 412. It was really, uh, it was easy. It was gravy. I should have been able to walk out to the edge of that, look down, look underneath the eaves and all of that without any fear of heights whatsoever. I didn't have any fear of heights. But I got up on this roof, and I clung to the peak of that roof with an inexplicable terror. And I had to tell myself, there is nothing to be afraid of here. You're not going to fall. You've done this a hundred times. But for some inexplicable reason, I was overcome with terror. Have you ever been somewhere when you just feel terrorized and you're not sure why and there's no apparent danger? Is it not possible that these men saw in the eyes of the Holy Christ, the King of Israel, the Messiah of God, a holiness and a judgment and a zeal and a passion and a righteousness and that they and the animals and everybody else who were guilty of this horrendous sin of defiling the temple of God simply turned and fled from his presence. After all, he is the one from whom one day heaven and earth will flee away and men will crawl and cry for the rocks to fall on them. I think those men got a glimpse of that Christ that day as he drove them out simply by the force of his word and by his will. Now, all of the religious authorities, what Jesus was doing wasn't lost on them. In fact, look down at verse 18. You see their question. The Jews then said to him, and by that he doesn't mean the crowd, the average Jews. He means the religious leaders, the authorities of Israel, because that's how John uses the term the Jews in his in his correspondence between Jesus, in discussions between Jesus and the religious leaders. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? What right do you have? to come into the temple and drive out what we as the priest, what we as the priesthood, what the nation of Israel has brought into the temple. You have no right to act this way in the house of the God of Israel. What authority do you have to do this? And what authority did Jesus give them? His own authority. He in essence says, I'm the divine son. You have turned my father's house into a house of merchandise. Their reaction to him was to request of him evidence that he had authority to do what he did. Now, how would the rest of the crowd have responded to this? All of the people. Remember, there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in this massive courtyard when all of this stuff starts breaking loose. Can you imagine the pandemonium? All of those animals running for the exit, all of the vendors and the turning over the tables and all of that going on, the pandemonium that would have been struck. And I think people would have been milling around just to get a glimpse of what was going on. Now, would all of the worshipers who had come from all over the empire to Jerusalem to worship, what would they have done? What would their reaction to it would have been? You know what it was? They would have loved what Jesus did because they saw the whole thing as corrupt and they hated the fact that it was going on and they rejected it themselves. They knew that it was corruption. He wouldn't have gotten any resistance from them. Nor would he probably have got any resistance from the Roman soldiers who would have been in the temple that day. They would have been glad that somebody was doing something with this madhouse that the Jews had turned the temple into. But the religious authorities, the religious authorities were willing to call him on the carpet and they did. This is an amazing demonstration of Jesus' power. His sheer ability to command obedience through his will and through his word. Second, it's a demonstration or a revelation of his position. Look what he says in verse 16. He says in verse 16, to those who were selling the doves, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. To the dove salesman, he said, stop making my father's house a house of business. Get the doves out of here. Something that I find interesting, and I don't know how much we can make of this, but I think it's an interesting observation. In all that Jesus did, he really didn't cause any of these men any real loss. You notice that? He acts with passion. He acts with conviction. He acts with zeal. He acts with authority and with power. 
But at the end of the day, nobody really lost anything. He drove the animals out of the temple and the men who were selling the animals. They could have rounded their animals up outside the temple and not lost anything. He dumped the coins out on the ground, which could have easily been gathered up again. And rather than setting all of the doves free and letting all of the doves go, he tells the people who were exchange, uh, selling the doves, get these out of my father's house. At the end of the day, nobody really lost anybody, anything. And although everybody was rebuked, nobody was really harmed. Jesus wasn't guilty of destroying anybody's property or of costing anybody anything or of damaging anybody's business or their equity or their possessions. But he was responsible for, and he did, sanctify the house of God by driving these people out with the authority that he did. And he said to the money changers, stop making my father's house a place of business. The NASB and the NIV have place of business. I think it's the King James, the New King James that has house of business or house of merchandise. Better translation, because there is a little play on the word house there. Stop making my father's house a house of business. And the word business, or the, the word uh, commerce there, or trade, merchandise, is emporion, from which we get our word emporium. You've taken my father's house and made it an emporium, a place of trade, a place of, of bartering, and, and a, trace of, a place of business. He told them to get the doves out of the temple and to, to t- take them out. He didn't drive the doves out. He didn't let the doves loose. He simply gave them the command to get out. Now, Jesus' command, or Jesus' statement, stop making my father's house a place of business. That doesn't sound odd to us at all, the fact that he would refer to the temple as his father's house. It doesn't sound odd to us because we're familiar with Jesus being the son, and we're familiar with the fact that he had a, a relationship with the father, and we call God our own father, so it doesn't strike us as odd. But keep in mind, he's not necessarily speaking to us on this occasion. He was speaking to the Jews of his day, and it would have been not just odd, but blasphemous for him to say this. For Jesus to make God out to be his father was to, in essence, claim that he had the same nature as his father. When you are, in the Jewish mindset, the son of someone or something, that means that you share the same nature as the person who was your father. My son shares my nature. He's a human being just like I am and a sinner at that, and a very good one. Probably a better sinner than I am, but a sinner nonetheless. For Jesus to make his, uh, uh, to make God to be his father was a claim to deity. It was Jesus saying, I have the same nature as God. To put this into a perspective for you, can you imagine Moses ever claiming that the tabernacle was his father's house? Moses would never say that. Moses never said that, even though Moses was God's friend and talked with God face to face, as a friend does, face to face. Moses was a special man, a deliverer, the lawgiver, a leader for the whole nation of Israel, but at no time did Moses ever say of the tabernacle, this is my father's house. Solomon, who built the architect and engineer and builder of the great temple, never once said the temple was his father's house. Solomon would never say that. Even though Solomon was the son of David and heir to the Davidic covenant and the one through whom the Messiah came, Solomon would never say, this is my father's house. Ezra, who was a great leader of God and who did much to reinstitute temple worship back in the temple after the Babylonian captivity, a man revered by the Jews, would never make the claim, this is my father's house. Why? Because they could never say that God was their father. They would never say that because it was blasphemy to say so. It was blasphemy to claim to be a special son of God in heaven. And yet Jesus was able to say, this is my father's house. And that is the key to his claim of authority. The Jews in verse 18 said, what sign do you show us that you do these things, that you have the authority to do these things? 
And Jesus is, in essence, answering them before they even ask the question, and He's already told them by what authority He does this. He's saying, I'm the divine Son. I can do whatever I want in the temple because this is my Father's house, and I can act on behalf of my Father, and I have authority over the priests, over the priesthood, over the temple, over the sacrifices, over the worship, over the entire religious structure, and I can do whatever I please in this house because this house belongs to my Father and I'm acting on His behalf. He's acting here as the Son of God. Second, Jesus is also acting as the King of Israel in this passage. There's no verse here really that indicates it other than back in chapter 1 where I think it's Nathaniel called him, you are the Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Remember in the Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament and what would happen when a good king came to the throne after a series of bad kings? And the bad kings had brought in all of the temple uh, idolatry and idols into the temple and the altars and the sacrifice and they worshiped false idols in the temple. And finally, a good king would come to the throne and you sort of breathe a sigh of relief. What was one of the first things that the good king did? He went into the temple and he cleaned out all of the idolatrous worship. Well, there is idol worship going on in the temple, and this is exactly what Jesus does. As the rightful son of David, the king of Israel, he does what any good king would do, and that is to exercise his authority over the temple and to go in and to clean out all the idol worship. And it was idol worship that was going on. The covetousness and the greed was idolatry, and it was going on in the name of pure worship. Jesus acts as the son of God, and he acts here as the king of Israel. Third, he also acts as the messenger of the covenant because there is a prophetic significance to what Jesus does here in John chapter 2. In Malachi chapter 3, there's a prophecy, not only of this instance, but also something that Jesus will do when he comes back. Listen to Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Remember, we we talked about that verse in connection with John the Baptist back in chapter 1 because the messenger who would precede the Lord was John the Baptist or the Elijah who was to come. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand before him when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Kind of sounds like John 2, doesn't it? Who can stand before him when he comes? The Lord is coming to his temple, Malachi says. And he is going to appear, and who can dare stand before him when he comes? He's going to be like a refiner's fire, a purifying fire. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Now Malachi is predicting something that's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes back the second time. He's going to purge the nation. He's going to purge the religious life. He's going to purge the the life and the land of Israel unlike ever before. But what we see in John chapter 2 is a partial prophetic fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 where Jesus came to the temple and he does exercise a purifying influence. He does purify the land and the temple and the people there. But it's only a glimpse of what is yet to come. So he's acting as the son of God, as the king of Israel, and as the messenger of the covenant who Malachi said would come to the temple like a refiner's fire, and nobody will be able to stand before him. So in the cleansing of the temple, we see the power of Jesus revealed, manifested. We see his position as the divine son, as the king of Israel. And third, we also see his passion. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And Jesus did all of this activity, and his disciples were not participating in it. They weren't helping him. They were observing this. And as they observed this activity, and his passion, and his zeal, they said, you know what? That reminds us of Psalm 69, verse 9, where David said, zeal for your house will consume me. 
Now, Psalm 69 was the one we read for the scripture reading this morning. It was a Messianic psalm quoted in the New Testament in the number of places that we noted. Psalm 69 was always viewed as a Messianic psalm by the Jews. And the disciples, when they saw what Jesus did, they remembered David's words and they said, there's a parallel here. David had a zeal for the house of God. Jesus has a zeal for the house of God. And in Psalm 69, David's problems, all of his distress and his affliction, his anxiety and his near-death experience in the sense that people were trying to kill him and wanted to kill him, all of that came about because David was zealous for the house of God. David was zealous for the land of God, the truth of God, the word of God, the glory of God, the name of God, and the people of God, and the honor of God. Everything that should honor God, David was zealous for that. And it was his commitment to the honor and the majesty and the truth and the place and the house of God that got him into trouble. Because it caused, as David says in Psalm 69, My brothers have forsaken me. My family has forsaken me. Those who once loved me now call themselves my enemies. Those who once ate their bread with me now lift up their heel against me. I am hated by people without number for no cause whatsoever. And David says, the reproaches of all those who have reproached my God have fallen on me. And basically what David was saying was, I am so passionate and zealous for the glory of God that when God is dishonored, I feel that anxiety. When God is not honored the way He should be, I'm vexed by that. It consumes me. It eats me up. Now I ask you this. Do you have that type of zeal and passion for the glory of God? We should, but I don't think that we do. I really don't think there is any of us here who are as consumed by the glory and the honor of God as we should be. What does it do? Let me just ask you a few questions to test where you're at on this. Answer these in the quietness of your own mind. When God is blasphemed, how do you feel about that? Does it vex you? When the truth of God is not honored and exalted and treated as it should be in the house of God, among the people of God, what does that do to your own soul? Does it consume you? Are you consumed by zeal for the Lord when the gospel is not preached as it should be, it's not presented as it should be, when it is minimized, when sound doctrine is trampled underfoot, and the people of God who call themselves by the name of God do whatever they want in American evangelicalism and it doesn't vex most people. Does it vex you? Does it really strain you when God is not honored as He should be? You see, if somebody doesn't, if somebody dishonors my wife, I get very upset by that. You know why I'm upset by that? Because I'm zealous for her honor and for her good. And when somebody doesn't treat her like they should treat her, whether it is my child or whether it is a stranger on the street, I get up in arms and whoever it is just became my enemy because I'm zealous for her honor. Are you the same with God, with his word, with his gospel, with the truth, and with scriptures? Or does it not bother you at all when God is dishonored? I'm reading a fascinating little book here. Uh, I'm engrossed in it. The title is The Forgotten Spurgeon. I almost forgot the title of it by Ian Murray. And it's a biography you would think that I would be able to remember the titles of the books I read, but I, I don't, especially when I'm trying to do stuff on the fly. The Forgotten Spurgeon by Ian Murray. It's a biography of Charles Spurgeon. It deals with three controversies in Spurgeon's life. The first controversy was, was the controversy between Arminianism and hyper-Calvinism in Spurgeon's day. Second controversy was over the, in, the instance of infant baptism, paedo-baptism. The third controversy was what was called the downgrade controversy. And this is a good illustration, Spurgeon is a good illustration, that the more you are consumed by the zeal and the glory of God, the more zealous you are for God's name, the more it will cost you. It will always cost you, and it will cost you greatly. We ought to be zealous for the glory of God, but it will cost us. And here's how it costs Spurgeon. 
Spurgeon stood against a movement that was known as the downgrade controversy. It was the last great controversy in the land of England, in London, during Spurgeon's time. And he wrote against it, he preached against it, he stood against it, and the downgrade basically was the movement among almost all churches, particularly in Spurgeon's Baptist denomination, in the Baptist convention, almost all churches to downgrade everything spiritual. They wanted to dumb down preaching. Just preach entertaining stuff, stop with the doctrine. They wanted to dumb down doctrine and say doctrine doesn't matter, it just divides us. Let's all get together and hug one another and love one another and let's join back with the Anglicans, join back with the Catholics. There shouldn't be any division among anybody who names the name of God. And they wanted to downgrade the role of the church and the role of doctrine and the role of truth and gospel proclamation. All of that was being minimized in Spurgeon's day and Spurgeon said, no, we can't do this and be faithful to Scripture at the same time. And he wrote against it and he preached against it and at the end of the day, you know what happened? By a vote of 2,000 to 7, his denomination voted to censor him. He was excoriated in the press of his day. He was excoriated in the pulpits in London and in England, all over the land. He was excoriated by even his brother, James Spurgeon, who was on staff with him in his own church. The greatest defender of doctrinal truth and the gospel in the 1800s on the whole European continent, the greatest defender of gospel truth was censored and excoriated and hated by those who once called themselves his friends. And it eventually cost Spurgeon everything. In fact, most people, most biographers of Spurgeon say that it was the downgrade controversy and his passionate stand against that which put him into an early grade. It so taxed his health. Spurgeon was so zealous for the glory of God, for the honor of God's name, that he could not stand by and watch it trampled underfoot. It cost Spurgeon, it cost Jesus, it cost David, and if you're going to be zealous for the glory of God, it'll cost you too. And if you're going to get zealous for the honor of God and for the honor of God's truth, and you're going to be called a fundamentalist and a radical, if you get zealous about gospel proclamation of accuracy of the gospel, you're going to be called a narrow-minded bigot. If you get zealous for the truth of God's word and sound doctrine and want to, and want to stick to that, you're going to be called narrow-minded and bigoted and, and a cynic and a critic and you're just too narrow, you're not loving enough, you're not tolerant enough. Who are you to judge other people? You're a judgmental, blah, 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 and on it goes. The more zealous you are for whatever it is that honors God, the more you're going to be hated by the world in which we live and by people who name the name of Christ who are not zealous for the glory of God at all. And what you and I ought to do is pray that that zeal which characterized David, which characterized Jesus, and which characterized so great, so many great men and women throughout church history ought to characterize you and I as well. And that that zeal for the glory of God should consume us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in the goodness of your grace to us. We thank you that in Christ you have called us and saved us and sanctified us and called us your own. You have not been ashamed to call us your sons or for Christ to call us his brothers and sisters. We thank you that though you were not ashamed of us and you loved us, you sent your son to die for us and to atone for our sins. And we pray now, God, that this zeal, which should characterize all the children of God, would characterize us, that you'd work that work in our heart and give us a passion for your glory, for your namesake, and for the truth of your word, that you might be honored through us as we live lives of obedience and passionate love for you and for all that you've given to us. We thank you, God, that you have called us to yourself, and we pray that you may be our never-ending joy and the ambition and desire and satisfaction of our hearts. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.